Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. We are following the life of Jesus chronologically through the New Testament. And we are doing quite a bit of jumping around now. You remember we had an earlier Judean ministry that was covered by the Gospel of John that the other Gospels did not cover. But now we are into the era of Christ's public ministry back in Galilee, and you will find something similar to this in three of the gospel accounts. Matthew 4, beginning with verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Up in Canada... Some of my friends up there have been debating what is called the new perspective on justification. It is an idea that has arisen out of England under the ministry of several well-known theologians over there and uh, has infiltrated Canada to some extent, and it is impacting many of the men that we know up there. Uh, It deals with the question of Jewish markers, they are called. It deals with the literature of Second Temple Judaism, first century literature sources. And after listening to this being debated around, our good friend Don Theobald made the comment that if you can't explain it to Granny, it's probably not true. If you can't explain it to Granny, and what he means by that, if you can't, in a few words, give the sense of the thing, if it's so complicated that unless you can read the original languages and understand the literature of first century Judaism, if that's what you've got to know in order to understand what the Bible is talking about when it talks about justification by faith, then it's probably not true. It's just not that complicated. And I agree. I think he's hit the nail right on the head. If you can't explain it to Granny, it's probably not true. Now, that being said, if you were to ask me to define Christianity, just to boil it down to its essence, define it in its simplest possible terms, I do believe I would respond, my answer would be simply a quote of the words of Jesus, follow me. That's it. That's what it's all about. Follow me. We see it here. Jesus has already called some of these disciples before. We learn from John's gospel that Jesus had encountered Peter and Andrew earlier at the baptism of John the Baptist. They had been disciples of John. And when Jesus comes on the scene... John points out the Lamb of God, which will take away the sin of the world, and they begin to follow Jesus. But not in a full-time sense. seems that the calling of Jesus' disciples took place in stages. Yes, there was that initial contact where they began to follow Jesus instead of John the Baptist. 
But here in Matthew's account, we find them back home, back in Galilee, back at their occupations. Peter and Andrew out fishing, throwing a net into the sea. And here in verse 21, we find James and John with Zebedee, their father, mending their net, sitting in a boat as Jesus walks by. Jesus calls. He says, follow me. And they leave. Uh, They leave everything. They leave their work. They leave their home. James and Zebedee sitting in the boat with Zebedee, their father, get up and they leave the nets they're working on and they leave their father. And for the next three and a half years, they follow in the footsteps, literally, of this one who came along one day and said, follow me. In Matthew 9, turn a little later, in Matthew 9, we see the calling of Matthew. Matthew was not exactly uh, going to win most popular at his high school in his high school yearbook. He was sitting at the receipt of customs. He was a tax collector, one of the hated publicans. And notice in Matthew 9, in verse 9, as Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, here it is again, follow me. And he arose and followed him. He just got up from his job. He walked off. He left it all and followed Jesus. And then lest we think these words apply only to those men we call the twelve, look in Matthew 16 just a moment. In Matthew 16, we have one of those rather universal expressions, if any man, the whosoevers of Scripture. In Matthew 16, verse 24, we read, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Matthew 19, verse 21, when the rich young ruler came running to Jesus saying, What do I lack? Jesus said, Just one thing. Go sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. That's it. That's the essence of Christianity. And you say, oh, well, wait a minute. What about, what about God's hidden secret purposes? What about the doctrine of election and predestination and all of that? Well, let me ask you. When John speaks of the elect of Christ, the people that God has given to his son to save, and he speaks of them in John 10 under the figure of a flock of sheep. It's a good way to illustrate us. Sheep, dumb. Helpless. They stink a lot. That's a pretty good illustration of what we're like. And he gives that figure that, that Christ came to save his sheep. Well, how do we know his sheep? My sheep, he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's how you know who they are. Or you like to see it under another figure, the 144,000 that we've been talking about in the book of Revelation, in chapter 14 of Revelation. John says, I saw the Lamb upon Mount Zion with 144,000. Look at the description. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's how you know who the elect are. It's not by some strange sign or some insight. 
You identify the people of God, the people that Christ is going to say by the fact that they leave everything and they follow Christ. That's it, in a nutshell. I don't know how to make it any simpler. The youngest child here that can understand any of my words this morning can understand those words. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that we follow Christ. Now, I know there are those, say from a theological standpoint, that would say, well, wait a minute, Brother Mark, uh, don't we have to be careful here? What about faith? What about believing on Jesus? Is it not that we're justified by faith, that our sins are forgiven by our faith in Jesus Christ? Well, most certainly that's true. And you would say, well, wait a minute, aren't you substituting here a life of following Jesus for that which is to be a free gift, the gift of grace? Well, let me make two comments. First of all, the fact that Jesus would walk by and say, follow me, and men get up and leave everything and follow him, doesn't that tell you something about their faith? This commandment presupposes faith. You don't get up and walk away from everything and follow a person that you have no confidence, no faith in. And then secondly, yes, it is a gift, all right. The gift of life, the gift of salvation. But my friend, it's not a gift that's given apart or detached from Christ. It's a gift that is given through a relationship with Him, a following of Jesus, if you will. It is free on the one hand. It will cost you everything you've got on the other hand. Jesus didn't charge these guys a fee, you know, tuition fee, to study at His feet. He didn't charge them a toll to walk behind Him in His footsteps. It was absolutely free what He was offering these men. On the other hand, in the very nature of it, it cost them everything they had. They had to leave it all. To gain this, they had to leave that. And that's the way it is in Christianity. Or may I say that any gospel that does not present to you that paradox is not the true gospel. A gospel that does not require you to lose your life in order to find it is not the true gospel. And that's what is going on here. Life is being offered freely, but they're going to have to leave behind everything they've got in order to get it. These things are brought together in an interesting passage in John the 12th chapter. John chapter 12. Here's that paradox. John 12, 25 Jesus speaks of himself as a seed that must fall into the ground and die and bring forth much fruit in the previous verse. And then John twelve twenty five, he that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. There's that paradox. And if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. If any man serve me, let him follow me. Now let's talk about following Jesus. Let's talk about that phrase, follow me. I want to point out two things in particular, two things that that phrase tells us. First of all, when we say that Christianity is wrapped up 
contained in this statement, follow me, we are implying then that the personal presence of Christ is involved in this thing. Now, let me, let me try to illustrate what I'm saying. If someone walks up, and sometimes people do, they'll come up here and knock on the door, and they will say, can you tell me how to get from here to, let's say, uh, you know, Walmart? Now, there's two ways. I can tell you how to get from here to Walmart. I can either say, well, let me draw you a map. You see, this is Malone, this is Goodman, and so forth. I, I can draw it out. Or I can say, well, just come on follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Do you see what I'm saying? It implies the personal presence of the one that we are following. And to a large extent, the difference between Christianity and any other of the infinite number, it seems, of the world's religions in our day is the difference between following a map and following a person. I mean, Buddha can tell you what to do. Muhammad can tell you what to do. They can draw you a map. Jesus says, follow me. Just just come follow me. Just follow. In other words, Christianity is not necessarily following a prescription for a happy life. It is not necessarily a manual of a code of conduct of some sort or a guide to your wealth and happiness and well-being. Christianity involves following, following in the steps of a living person. You understand what I'm saying? That's a great difference. It's a great difference to say, here's a map, or to say, just come on, follow me. Now, let me hurry to say that we don't see a physical Jesus standing in our midst today as these men saw one walking by the shore of Galilee who actually walks by and says, come follow me, and we get up and physically follow him. You you understand Jesus is not present with us in that sense. And we follow him by giving attention to what this book says. Now you say, well, wait a minute. You said he didn't give us a code of conduct or a rule of, you know, this or that. He didn't give us a road map. We follow a living person. Well, and that's why this book is so important. Because you see, this book is not so much an end in itself as it is the way that we come to know this person. You say, why are we so hung up on this book? I mean, a lot of people can understand the Scriptures. They said Nikita Khrushchev could recite from memory the entire New Testament. Imagine that. Now, this book is not an end in itself. But this book is important because it reveals to us this person that we are to follow. Andrew Murray, best known for his book on prayer with Christ in the School of Prayer, Put it like this. He says, it is in our words that we reveal ourselves. That's an interesting way of looking at it. How do you know me? And how do I, you know, do we, I get to know Barry by just sitting there and staring at him? I'd probably come with the wrong impression if that were the case. How do I get to know Barry? Well, we sit down and we talk. 
you know, I have thoughts in my mind and he has thoughts in his mind, but, you know, we just sit there and stare at each other and mental telepathy try to read each other's thoughts. No, we put our word, our thoughts into words. We utter words. And it is in our words, says Murray, that we reveal ourselves. He says it is in our words that we give ourselves away. In our promises, we give ourselves away. Some of you men, women, husbands, wives, stood at a place like this and said some words. They're just words. Yeah, but in those words, you gave yourself away. Well, what Murray is pointing out is this somehow unnatural distinction that we like to draw between God's Word on the one hand and God on the other. Is what Murray is pointing out is that it is through God's Word that He reveals Himself to us. Oh, how true that is. It is through God's promises that He gives Himself to us. And so it is through the Word of God. We have revealed to us this person that we are to follow. So you see, the, the Word in itself is not necessarily the end in itself. The end all of all things. But it is in through this word that we get this glimpse of this person in whose feet, footsteps, we are to follow. And then the second thing, that's the first thing. To follow him, if that's what Christianity is, it then obviously implies his presence. The second thing is that it obviously implies that he's ahead and we're behind. You ever tried to lead somebody somewhere? You know, we're going to lead you down to Walmart. And as soon as you get close, you know, they think they've got, got it figured out and they, and they try to pass you. You know, as soon as they figure out that they know where they are and they've got it figured out, uh, I mean, they don't want to follow you. They want to lead you. The, the point is, is that when we say follow me, it assumes that the one who says that is out front and the one who's going to do it is behind. To follow means to walk not just in the footsteps, but behind the one who's leading. That, that makes sense? In other words, when we say, follow me, or when Jesus says, follow me, it is implying that you don't know where to go, how to walk, and it is implying that I do know the way, where to go. Now, He is not then someone who merely describes the way and says, go on. But he is someone who is the way and says, come on. Now that was real witty, so I'm going to say it again. I want you to think about this. I mean, this may be the only witty thing I say all day. He's not someone who knows the way and says, go on. He's someone who is the way and says, come on. And there's all the difference in the world in that perspective. In other words, what is my task as a Christian? It's just follow him. Do you see where he goes? Go there. Do you see what he does? Do that. I know, of course, it's very popular in our day, the the WWJD stuff. and Some say, well, we ought to be saying WJD, what Jesus did. Others saying, well, it's WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, in essence, it's really both of those things. 
It is certainly recognizing what he did and realizing that there was something about what he did that I cannot do for myself, that he has done for me what I cannot do. But there's another sense in indeed where I live my life following in the steps of the master and I'm asking myself, what would Jesus do? Or how did he do it? What did Jesus do when he was in this kind of a circumstance, this kind of a situation? After all, he was tempted in all points like as we are. So the same situation in which I find myself today is a situation he faced. How did he do it? How did he handle it? You begin to understand the importance of this book? It is in the, these pages that we see how Jesus did it, how he responded, how he handled the circumstances at hand. You say, well, what am I to do as a Christian? Well, what did he do? He says he went about doing good. Now, if you're going to follow him, don't you just suspect that maybe you ought to go around doing good? You say we're to be a bunch of do-gooders? Well, that's what he was. I mean, you know, when Jesus came to town, they didn't lock the doors, bar the windows. Here he comes, you know, get the kids inside, get everybody off the street. No telling what he's liable to do. He went around doing good. That's what he did. You say, well, well, what else do you do? Well, I see him humbling himself. We say, well, how, how can I do that? Well, Paul says, let the mind of Christ be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see how he did it? He was God of very God, but he came into this world, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made found in fashion as a man, humbled himself, became obedient even unto the death of the cross. That's how he did it. Do it like he did. What else did he do? Well, he said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. In fact, that night of his betrayal, he girded himself with a towel and took a basin of water and got down and washed his disciples' dirty feet. Well, if that's how he did it, then I suspect if we're following him, you catch my drift here? I mean, is this rocket science? Is this all that complicated? You, you see how he did it? He, he, he stooped. He, he performed the most menial of tasks, the dirty things that they weren't about to do for one another. He bowed. He stooped. He served rather than insisted on being served. That's, that's how he did it. I mean, on and on we can go. How, you talk about, well, should, what, what else should I do? He was a giver. In fact, Paul points out in inciting the Corinthians to give of their money. He says, remember how Christ, though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sakes, that you through his poverty might be made rich. You catching on here? You, you see how he did it? So it's essentially just following in the steps of the Master. In fact, see it very plainly stated that way. First Peter, First Peter chapter 2. Because there was another thing that Jesus did. It was one thing that we try to avoid at all costs. And that's suffering. We think if we suffer, the world must be coming apart. The universe must be ending for us, we, to have to suffer. And yet the New Testament just sort of takes it for granted. That's exactly what we'll be doing in this age, suffering. Well, how are we going to suffer? Well, I suspect we ought to suffer like Christ suffered. Well, how did he suffer? Look in 1 Peter 2, verse 20. 
1 Peter 2.20, Peter writes, For what glory is it if when you're buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? In other words, you're getting in trouble for something you've done. And oh my, shall I say, most of the time that we suffer in this life is because we're reaping what we've sown. You know, we're having to clean up our own messes. But Peter is saying, big deal. If you suffer patiently and quietly, cleaning up your own messes, reaping what you yourself have caused, that's no glory. That's no glory to God. But if when you do well and suffer for it, when you do something good and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Let me say it again. I find that I can patiently endure, well, most of the time, the sufferings of life when I'm suffering something I've done. I mean, you know, I can generally bite my tongue and, you know, get through it. But I'm telling you, when somebody starts falsely accusing me, when somebody makes me suffer for doing right... In other words, when my suffering, and the definition of Peter here, begins to glorify God, if I take it patiently, that's when my, I lose it. I, I'm, I'm not explaining this well. I lose it at exactly the point where Peter says my suffering patiently would glorify God. Now, why in the world would Peter have this idea that you and I are to suffer quietly and patiently for things that are not our fault? Where did he ever get this crazy idea? I'll tell you where he got it. Look in the next verse, verse 21. For even hereunto were you called. When Jesus says, follow me, you need to understand that's part of this call. Because Christ also suffered for us. He didn't suffer for his own faults. Suffer for your faults and my faults. Leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Peter says, look at how Jesus suffered. When they cursed him, when they mocked him, when he finally opened his mouth, on that cross, and we might expect him. <laughs> we stand in there, we say, okay, boys, you're going to get it now. <laughs> yeah, you've been heaping all this abuse and scorn on Jesus, but buddy, you watch out. He's about to speak. And he opens his mouth, and the first words we hear him say is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's how Jesus did it. To follow in his steps, I just suspect that's what Peter's saying here. Just see how he did it and do it like that. The key is very, very simple to living the Christian life. He didn't say it's easy. I just said it's simple. Run the race looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Just look at him. Just do what he did. Do it like he did it. Now, it's very, very simple But this call to discipleship, this task, I want to say, I don't know, I've got about seven things down here, so I'll say them quickly. First of all, the task is a simple one. Granny can understand this. 
I mean, we, the call to follow Christ is not a call to be innovative or creative. He's not asking you or I to break new ground, to blaze a new path to glory. You think about it. And that's, I'm afraid that's what most of us have the idea that, you know, to be a Christian, he's, he's asking me to, boy, just do something as astounding. No, he's just asking you to follow him. He's the one who broke the path, blazed the trail, opened the way. Our job is to simply follow in his footsteps. Does that make sense? He's not saying to you to be creative. Just follow me. We are not to be isolated or weird. The call to follow Jesus is not to embrace the bizarre. Oh, I know the world doesn't understand us, but in essence, we are to simply follow in the steps of the Master, just like His sheep have done from time, since the time of His death onward. I, I used to raise sheep. I know this fact about sheep is that they're a herd animal, and they follow one another. I had little paths cut through the pasture where those sheep would follow each other in single file from one end of the pasture to the other. My point is, is that you and I are not called, again, to blaze a new trail, cut a new path. It's the old path that we're to look for, the path that the saints of old have trod. We're not to be unique and creative and innovative, novel. We simply follow the old way that leads to glory. And that's the first thing. It's a simple task. Second thing, though, it is an essential task. Where, pray tell, is the Scripture that finds Jesus ever implying that following Him is optional? You know, that following Him is for the spiritual marines, but not for the rank and file. Will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How else do you understand? Where do you find the text that he'll say, now some of you need to follow me, but not all. In fact, we find one man, it's over in Matthew chapter 8, this man comes to Jesus and said, I'll follow you, but first, let me bury my father. Now that seems like a reasonable request. Right? If ever there was going to be a little give on this condition of following Christ, you'd expect to find it here. And what does our Lord reply? Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Does that seem harsh? Does that seem cruel? Now, the fact is, most of the time, the Lord lets us bury our fathers and our mothers. But my friend, if it's a choice between burying my relatives and following Christ, there really is no choice. I'm to follow Him. Absolutely essential. The third thing is, it's an all-inclusive task. It is to be the consuming task of our lives following Jesus. Let me try to illustrate this by a little background on life in Nashville. 
Nashville is an interesting place because it's full of musician wannabes. And you'd be sitting in a barber shop, and the guy cutting your hair, you asked him what, what he is. He's a musician. I mean, he's a guitar player, he's a songwriter, he's a singer. Well, what are you doing here cutting hair? Well, he's having to do this to stay alive, to keep food on the table. You see, there's very, very few of the people in Nashville that actually can make a full-time living music. But the whole town is full of musicians. You ask them what they are. They're a songwriter. They're a singer. Now, they may be loading trucks. They may be cutting hair. That's just what they do so they can be in Nashville and be a musician. You, you get the picture. To be a musician is what they're all about. They may have to do other things, but that's what their life is. And my friend, that's what Jesus is describing here. This is an all-inclusive task to be a follower of Jesus. Now, you may be doing this, you may be doing that, you may be an accountant, you may be an architect, you may be an engineer, but that's just what you do. It's sort of like William Carey. He was a shoe cobbler before he went to India, and they asked him, well, what's a shoe cobbler want to do going to be a missionary? And he said, well, cobbling shoes is just what I do, so I can do this. In other words, that's just what pays the bill so I can be a minister, a missionary of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how every single follower of Jesus ought to view their lives. I am first and foremost a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a disciple. Now, in the morning, I may have to get up and go to this office, or I have to go do this task or that task. But my friend, this is what I am. That's just what I do. To pay the bills so I can do this. This is my ambition. This is my chief end in life, as the old, the old confessions used to say it. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? That this is what I'm all about. I'm a follower of Jesus. It is not my avocation. It's not my hobby. Being the accountant or the architect or the... That's my hobby. That's my avocation. This is what I'm all about. This is my life. You say, well, it's the most important part of your life. Uh-uh. No. Christ didn't come to be a part of your life, even the most important part. Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. He's it. Everything I do, even sitting down at the table and eating and drinking, says Paul, I do to the glory of God. This is my life. This is my business. And where I'm on a job, whether I'm out uh, doing this or doing that, I do it as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's an all-embracing, all-encompassing task. And then fourthly, it's a spiritual task, as I said a moment ago. We don't have Christ physically here in our presence this morning that we can fall in behind Him, rank and file, and follow Him out the door. But He is here in our midst, in the person of the Spirit. And they that are led, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, says Paul in Romans 8. We are indeed to follow in the steps of Christ. That's why, again, this book is so important. That we understand who he was, what he was, what he did, how he did it. And we follow. And then fifthly, this task is, I want to call it an assigned task. I mean by that, that specifically what my Lord has me do in following him may not be exactly what he has you do in following him. 
Tim works down there at the plant making pool cues. Well, Tim doesn't. He's repair department. But there's other people down there, Perry, you, you know, some of them are working on wood. Some of them are putting assembly. Some people are packing. Somebody is getting ready to ship. You've got all these people working in all these different areas, but all to this one main end, right? I grew up on a farm. We had a lot of hands. I mean, some of them might be out there thrashing wheat. Some of them be out here chopping cotton. Some of them be in the house washing clothes. All to the one end. And so it is in the case of Jesus Christ that what Christ will have me specifically do, the specific task that he assigns to me may not be the one he assigns to you. There's an interesting case of the Gadarene maniac. You know who I'm talking about, this guy that ran around naked in the graveyard, cutting himself, trying to commit suicide, just wild guy, and... Jesus casts the legion of demons out of him, you remember, and he, the townspeople come out finding him clothed in his right mind. And I mean, they're scared to death of Jesus. They, they want him out of there. And this man comes to Jesus as Jesus gets ready to depart. and says, let me follow you. Let me go with you. And what does Jesus reply? Go to your own home and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. Isn't that, isn't that strange? To John and Peter, he says, come follow me. And this man, he says, no, no, go home. Stay here. Stay here and tell your own people what the Lord has done for you. And the interesting thing is, in Matthew's account, that when Jesus came back to that area, he said the people gladly welcomed him and received him through the witness of that man. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Now, you say, well, I guess he didn't need to follow Jesus. No, he was following Jesus in the sense that he was doing precisely what the Master told him to do. It wasn't exactly what he told Peter and John to do, but this was his task. And so it is, my friend, that uh, it was with John and Peter after Jesus' resurrection that Jesus tells Peter, you're a young boy now, Peter, you gird yourself, you go where you want. There's coming a day another will gird you and take you where you don't want to go. Speaking of the manner, John tells us, of which he would glorify God in his death. And Peter, true to form, looks around and sees John standing there and says, And what shall this man do? <laughs> what about him? <laughs> Wait a minute. This is just me. What is he going to have to do? And Jesus says, What is that to you? Follow Thou me. It's not your business what I assign him. If I will that he tarry till I come, sit in the easy chair till I come back, that's my business. What is that to you? You follow me. The task he assigns me is not the task he assigns you and vice versa. But my friend, he does assign us a task, wherever our place of responsibility might be. And then it's a successful task. Jesus didn't say, now boys, come follow me and let's just give this thing our best shot. Let's see how it works out. You know, maybe we can get this thing off the ground. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'll make you men catchers rather than fish catchers. He didn't say, no, we're going to try. We're going to do the best we can. I will make you this. 
And you understand then that what he's saying is, is that the one who calls us to the task is also the one who can equip us and empower us for the task. He's not calling us to just get out there on our own, give it our best shot. But that he promises us success, and he promises that because he's the one who supplies the grace. Well, all of those things encompassing this simple little phrase, follow me. Easy, simple tasks, essential tasks, all-inclusive tasks, but may I say it's also a present task. Because down through the centuries comes the voice of Jesus, even today, that says, follow me. Who are you following today? You say, well, I don't follow anybody. I just sort of did. Oh, give me a break. Give me a break. I mean, we look around. I, you know, every time you see the 60s, where people are going to be individuals, right? Going to be unique. You look at them, they all look alike. Every single one of them. They all got long hair. You know, they, they all got the same look. To be unique, they all dressed exactly alike. And today, I'm going to be able to, you know, I'm going to put a ring in my nose, going to dye my hair. Yeah, just like everybody else. We just heard creatures. We follow the pack. We're not leaders, we're followers. Who are you following? What voice is it that has your ear this morning? Oh, you say, I'm a servant of Christ. Well, I remind you that Paul says in Romans 7, His servants ye are. Whom ye obey. The one you obey. When that voice says hop and you hop. When it says go and you go and it says stop and you stop. That's the voice that determines whose servant you are. The one you obey. Not the one you profess with your mouth. The one you obey with your life. Now, whose servant are you? Who is your Lord? Oh, you've got one. Oh, you may think you're your own individual and you do your own thing and so forth. Oh, no. Every man was made to be ruled and he's being ruled by someone or something. Christ is the only master that sets those he rules free. You've got a master. Who is it? Somebody you follow. I bring to you not the request, not just a mere invitation. I bring to you this morning the commandment of Jesus Christ. Come, follow me. You'll notice he didn't ever intend for that to be negotiable. I'll follow you if. I'll follow you when. He says, come. What about you today? Who are you following? Let's pray. Father, deal with our hearts. May we not make mockery 
of the name of Jesus by professing with a mouth that we follow Jesus when our lives do nothing of the fact. Lord, may we be consistent. And may we truly, truly bow the knee. That we thank you that he came as our Savior, as our priest, to with his own blood to cleanse us from our sin and our guilt. But may we never divorce that from the fact that he came as our Lord and our Master. And he comes to us today through his word, that voice that cries down through the centuries. Follow me. I pray that you would deal with hearts. That you might show the great need of our lives is to know Christ. That what we are searching for out there in the world, we will never find. That we will find it in only one place, and that is in Christ. I pray that you would open eyes to see the rebellion that even though they may think they toe the line and do everything just right, that, oh, Father, as long as they resist the claims of Christ, they're committing the greatest sin possible in rejecting the sovereign rule of their master, their rightful master and Lord, the one who bought the right to them. I pray, Father, that you might bring his claims mightily upon those who are resisting, even in this hour, that you would conquer the resistance, that you would break through the obstacles, and that, Father, you all, they would lose their life in order to find it in Jesus Christ. May you glorify him in the sight of men today and draw men unto him. We thank you for, again, for the wonderful thing you've done for us. And, oh, may we never lose sight of it. May we keep our eyes on Jesus, fixed on Him as we run this race. For we ask it in His name. Amen.